This is a murder mystery. It begins with a barnstormer, a young pilot in the 1920s, found dead. The young wife screamed again. Jeffrey! God, no! Jeffrey! She sank to the floor, falling across her husband's still body. Rebecca's sobs were moans, then shrieks, then repeated screams, piercing the jumble of her wronged house, breaching far beyond the walls out into the night. That's narrator Zakia Young, taking you into this daring story set in Denver, Colorado, during a time with an undercurrent, or really an overt presence of hate. It's when the Klan openly held positions of power and influence all over the state. We're talking with Colorado author Patricia Raybon on this Desideratum. A Desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, and I think this story is full of essential things. This week, we're talking about race and faith with author Patricia Raybon, whose new novel, Double the Lies, got me thinking about how to see over our walls into other people's stories, why we love a good mystery, and what transparency really lets us see. We start with Patricia's answer to, why did you start writing this series? early I started to try to write my own stories to look at what it meant to walk into a, a store and, and see uh, segregated water fountains or um, when we traveled to the south to visit our relatives we couldn't stay in a hotel we couldn't go into a Howard Johnson's and sit down and eat and so I would try to write stories and one day my um, one day my third grade teacher at Columbine Elementary School in Denver, called me up to her desk and said to me, Patricia, when you grow up, would you like to write stories? Would you like to be a writer? And the idea of it just excited me so much. And I, I said, yes, I would. And, and she said, Patricia, you are a writer. Wow. Declaring that over me. She was the first African-American teacher I'd had in, in elementary school. And uh, for her to declare that over me helps explain why you now have a copy of the latest Annalise Bain mystery. <laughs> and that's really where it comes from. I really like how your answer isn't about, well, last year or five years ago, or after I did this career or that career, but you're like, boom, let's take you all the way back to when I traveled with my family and experienced racism firsthand. And I think, I think throughout this story, we're set in the 20s in this story, a hundred years ago. Oh, we can't go in the theater that way. We can't sit here. This color taxi driver can't pick up that color there. Yeah. Every time you did it, it was, it was just part of the story, but it's thread through Almost every interaction, it feels like there's some, in every scene, there's some hint of how this is impacting life. So she's, she's, um, she's a sleuth. She's a detective. And in this book, she is trying to solve a crime. 
And it puts her right up against the Klan that are embedded and part of the culture of the police department. Yes. Yeah, the, the, at that time, the police chief was a dues-paying Klan member, and a good portion of the um, Denver Police Department were also Klan members. Actually, throughout the state, this Colorado had, had the second highest uh, Klan membership per capita in the nation. But, you know, the leadership from this in the state, from the governor on down, were uh, Klan members. Every county in Colorado had a Klan clavering. Wow. School board members, mayors, sheriffs, uh, police chiefs and police departments, jury commissioners. Uh, the, camp, the Klan was a ruling force in the state. There was no way for her to attempt the crime solving that she was struggling to do without her being aware of that and paying attention to, to that. Yes. One of the things that I liked about uh, you bringing that history, that real history, into this fiction mm -hmm. is that at one point you talk about all of the different people that the Klan hates. So this is not just focused on the Black population at the time. They hate a lot of different people. So we watch it affect Catholics uh, in the story and Jews. Yes. At one point you say... They don't hire Catholics or Jews, of course, or colored or Mexican, or anyone who loves all their neighbors. You know, the, the message of supremacy had come out of the post-Reconstruction period in an intentional way. And so that message was that if you're not white or Protestant and native born, you're not truly an American. And this, of course, was this story in my series right after World War One, And so um, people came back home, soldiers came back home with an insular mindset that instead of being out in the world fighting these big wars, we're going to turn our attention to our homeland and support the people who are really a part of that homeland. So if you're not white, if you're not, and you're not Protestant, you're not in that group. That's, that was, of course, part of the ethos. But the other was that other had bought into the messages of white supremacy that um, not only are you not part of this group, but that if you are white, you're better than everybody else. By naturally, you're better, you're smarter, you're cleaner. I thought it was so interesting, Teresa, that that message came out of um, one of the news cable stations during this recent immigration debate that immigrants make the U.S. dirtier. Yes. And I, that is such a very fine and important point to make, that what I, what I was bringing up is all the different people they hate, but really the underlying message is about the supremacy, right? It's about right. some people are better than other people. Right. And so we need to separate ourselves and stay above and away from these other people because they're going to, if they get into your neighborhood, into your school, into your lives, into your politics, if they get a chance to vote, they get a chance to make decisions, then it will drag down the entire country. We will be a mongrel race 
if we allow interracial marriage. And so it's suicide if you don't support these laws that keep these people away from us. And, you know, that kind of taps into this deep, deep emotional need for uh, survival. Fear. Yes. And I, I was going to ask you about making connections to today, but you just, you just did that so beautifully. Like, how are we, this is a hundred years ago. We are talking about it being institutionalized in very intentional, intentional ways. Yes. But the way you just tied that to the migrants of today, the, the immigration policies and attitudes about other right is very pervasive it's very pervasive isn't it it's very subtle and yet also kind of totally in your face really you know if you're looking for it like wow so i i to answer the question that you asked me at the beginning how did this come about this mystery series come about um i had been thinking about it for about 10 years i'm a uh, newspaper journalist by training I had not written fiction before, but I love the mystery genre. And I grew up in the church, so um, I had all these things operating. I knew I wanted to write a mystery that had some theological uh, influence somehow. And then um, we had the pandemic. And in the past, when writing fiction frightened me, I recognized that there was nothing about writing fiction that would be more frightening than what was going on in the world, which was a, a worldwide pandemic. So I, you know, I sat in this same room and dove in, and here we are. <laughs> yes, you. I'm so glad that you did. Well, I like that you brought up Faith, because I think she comes several times to a point in her mind of prayer. I... Mm -hmm. Help me, Lord, she suddenly thought, to see the people tonight as I see myself, a little confused sometimes, struggling to put my best self forward, even when others prefer to see me as my worst. But the other thing with this character, Teresa, is that she has questions about God because of her place in, this, in the society. She wonders, is God, does God really hear me? Does he see me? Does he understand what I'm going through? And, uh, and so in this church, she stops to reflect. And so in, in the story itself, it, does, it doesn't work for her to have the answers to her faith questions. Mostly she's searching around faith. And, and in, in many ways, the faith journey is a mystery. Yes, it is a mystery. I love how you just explained that. What she prays for in that moment is about clarity, too. She's, she seeks clarity while she's there, clarity of thought. Mm -hmm. She prays for clarity. And I think that really is, as we're all seeking to find answers to our own journeys, praying for clarity of thought or to know ourselves is really important. It's a really, I thought it was a very powerful moment for her. And then when she gets to go and do the speech, she talks about honesty. Um, she talks about hunting for your own truth. Yes. 
She says, we're all detectives. In life, in fact, we're all truth detectives. I am, you are, the person sitting next to you is. Say, hello, detective. Many in the audience chuckled, glancing at their seatmates, mumbling hello. So I think disarms what could have been a hostile, this white audience, which could have been hostile to her. That journey that we're all on is one that's common to us all. We're all seeking these answers and we're all looking for the truth about our lives. Yeah. Somebody asked me at uh, at a library one time, I did an event at the Douglas County Library a few weeks ago. And one of the people in the audience was asking, you know, why isn't she more overtly didactic in her thoughts and statements about faith and about God? And, you know, my answer was that, that the point that she's searching gives the rest of us permission to search too. And it also reflects my own faith experience. And so I'm enjoying the way that Anna Lee in the series is experiencing it while she's trying to solve mis- murder mysteries. <laughs> yes, it is. It's an element, but it's definitely not the main point. There's high stakes uh, murder mystery going on as well. One of the paths that she takes, one of the characters that she interacts with in solving these, uh, this particular mystery is a librarian. Mm-hmm. I really love, there's a scene in the library where uh, Annalie needs information or it would be helpful to her to have information on what someone has been reading, what they've been checking out of the library. It will help her solve, maybe pick a clue up to follow. And the librarian has has a perspective about privacy Uh that I really appreciated. Uh, Talk about where that came from. My second home, I guess, growing up was the library. Um, the Warren branch of the library, actually, in Denver. There was a, a safety there and a permission to, to seek around and ask questions. At the same time, early in the world of library science, early in the library community, discussions about privacy were starting to happen. The understanding that what somebody comes in to borrow something from the library, a resource, we keep a record of it, but that record is private. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And I do think library spaces in general have been this access point for living the truth of freedom of information, right? A freedom, the access to information. Well, the irony, of course, like it, so many other institutions in this country is that libraries were segregated for a long time. Yes. And so the Warren Library in Denver was actually named for a clergyman who was involved in the Freedmen's Bureau after Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so he was interested in bringing education to freed enslaved people. And then the librarian in the story also believes that the library should be open to everybody. Somebody says to her, you know, go to go to the colored library. Well, there was no colored library. <laughs> and so this, but this librarian has allowed Annalie to come in and search the the stacks and the shelves and check out books and, and read Sherlock. And read Sherlock, right. Yeah. 
Yes, it's a good point to be made that it, it wasn't always free access, free and open to everyone at every library. Right. But they have, I think, for me, they have become an example of an ideal we should hold up, you know, that it there should be equal access and availability and and privacy too, that it should be a safe space, a place where you have permission, like you said, to ask questions and learn and grow for everyone. Right. And, and of course, now we're in this season of book banning. And so librarians are on the front line, threatened and, you know, yeah, criticized and uh, having to fight to keep certain books on uh, available to be checked out. And so I'm um, pleased with the fact that Double the Lies, the second in the series, opens up in a library. <laughs> It was such an important place for me as a child. And it's the place where this story starts. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, there's a family, there's a Jewish family in this story connected to the murder who she spends time with. And at one point she's in their home in the mountains and there's art, there's art on the wall. So she sees the artwork and then discovers that they're not, real or they are real they've been painted they're beautiful works of art but they're not what they represent themselves to be they're forgeries and there's a reason for that that stems to this particular family's need to hide who they are I thought this was really a nice layer again you've kind of stabbed down into a piece of history can you talk about that a little bit right um this particular family are Sephardic Jews and they grew up in Spain, and there was a moment in history when, after the defeat of the of Muslims in Spain by Queen Isabella, uh, that whole era. They were going back hundreds of years. We're talking about the 14 or 1500s, right? Yes, right. way back. And so, and the Jews were expelled from Spain, and they were, only were allowed to take just uh, almost no money and just uh, almost the clothes on their backs. And uh, and a lot of them went to Portugal, but then after a while, experienced the same uh, bigotry and and hatred. And so the only way to get around that was for those families to um, reject their faith and become something else. So um, this particular Jewish family in the story has walked that fine line of um, not saying who they, being who they really are. And of course, this title, Double the Lies, it includes what has come down through history to this family's current situation. You know, there have been so many lies in the family, so much cover up. And um, behind that, a lot of bitterness and deep hurt, deep, deep family hurt. And solving this crime, uh, Annalie unearths some of that and set some of that uh, free. And it there, there are a lot of repercussions. Yeah. Like you said, it ties into the title. It was another layer of, of mystery and of people seeking their own truths. Well, you know, it's interesting, Teresa, because Spain in the past two, uh, couple of years has now reached out across the world to the Sephardic Jewish community and said, if you want to come back to Spain, welcome again. 
and you grant you Spanish uh, citizenship. But it's turned out to be, like so many things, complicated. And what people are finding is that the invitation has come with conditions that a lot of people can't meet. And so what started out as kind of a, a healing gesture has not felt that way to the people it targeted. And it has that campaign has not been nearly as successful as people thought it would be. Potential for it. Yes, it's disappointing. Yes, it is. I think it is hard. That's hard with all healing, right? Like that's hard. It's hard to go back in time. Yes. To to heal something. You really have to start from right now. And yet acknowledging the back in time right. is really is part of that right now healing. Yes. One of the thing I wanted to talk about is rooted down in Denver. So she has a cabin. She lives in a cabin. I have loved how there's so much cold in this story. You know, um, there's so much winter in it. And there's, and just sort of the constant sort of dealing with the right kind of coat and getting the fire started and, you know, thinking about Denver in the winter or the mountains, that's just park in the winter, just the survivability of all of that. But um, you put her in five points. This is where her cabin is, right? Yeah. Can you describe a little bit what that neighborhood was like, that space as her home? Yeah, Five Points is a historic neighborhood. One we think of today as a historically Black neighborhood. Most of Denver, all of Denver, other than that part of town, were closed off to uh, residency for Black citizens of Denver. And um, the community was its own world. The architecture, you know, if you go into Five Points or, you know, these closely built blocks and streets with small Victorian type homes. And um, so people, everybody knows everybody. And But Annalise's father, who was kind of a part-time cowboy with a lot of problems, including drinking, uh, was only able to get himself this uh, this kind of cabin on the edge of Five Points, not far from the South Platte River. And um, she has now taken over his home, taken over that cabin as the place where she lived. And so she understands the experience of being excluded. And, uh, and so Five Points is one of those places where excluded people settle and she's part of that excluded black community yeah she has a really lovely network of people who care for her and they're talking about you know chipping up firewood and using it in this wood-burning stove in the middle of the place and what kind of coat she can get from the thrift store and I just liked how often I felt the cold I remember my mother my mother grew up in in North Carolina she was a um the youngest of five. And she remembers, you know, before they had central heat or anything, before they had that, they had a fireplace. And that was the source of heat in that in that little house she grew up in, a house her dad built, actually. I remember her saying in the morning, you know, when they would get up in the morning, there'd be a layer of ice. If you had a glass of water by your bed, you know, in the wintertime, there'd be a layer of ice on the top of the water. And 
And so I remember as a child, Teresa, that a big part of wintertime in Colorado was my mother just smothering me in these heavy coats and uh, heavy wool caps and scarves and gloves. And it was just very important to her that I not be cold because that was what she had experienced as a child. So I'm sure that uh, came out a little in, in the story. Really. <laughs> works its way in yeah well is there anything about Annalise Spain this story or the series in general that I didn't ask you about that you like to talk about yes the story puts a face on a young black woman and the challenge of being who she is in an era when she didn't count and you know I didn't set out to do that but that's what has happened. That, and I have people say to me, I've never read a story with a character where the character, the central character was black. Or they'll say, you know, I didn't know there, were, that there was the Klan in Colorado. I hear that, I hear that a lot. But people will say, I'm rooting for her. You know, I go, I go to book clubs and a lot of times I'll, if somebody white invites me to their book club, everybody in the book club is white. And we, we still live very segregated lives. If somebody Black invites me to their book club, everybody in the book club is Black. And so um, often in a white, I was just in Longmont a couple of days ago this week, Every uh, a nice, uh, lovely lady who was white invited me to the club. Everybody in the club is white. But they're saying, um, we're cheering for Annalie. You know, we want her to not just solve these crimes, but have good things happen in her life and, and to um, to work things out with Jack, this pastor, because they keep going back and forth in their relationship. So I like that people are caring about her cross-racially, cross-culturally. And so I I love that about the, the series and what she provides for people who love to. Yeah, I think it's an interesting observation about how segregated we still are. Yes. And also, you know, a character who maybe we haven't seen before, but yet you you do all these historical references. Like it's a, she's possible. It's not like you've created a fantasy world outside of our world. You've plopped us right into Denver a hundred years ago. And she absolutely could have lived where she lived and done what she did and interact with people the way she's interacting with them. Like you've created a very high stakes murder mystery but it's all also very believable which is which is also a really big gift to put a face on a character that's she doesn't have superpowers she's cold when it's cold <laughs> yes she's functioning like someone like her might have been able to you know you know i i love historical fiction uh, and also i did not want to write a, a slave trauma and there is a lot of fiction that is slave trauma that is phenomenal and, you know, important and extraordinary. But I wanted to put her in a, in a time when she had a, a certain amount of, um, she had challenge, the challenge of being who she is, but still had an, a formal education. I think about my own parents who both were graduates of historically black colleges 
And that whole world is often um, seen by people who don't know about it or don't have an access to it. And so Annalise Mysteries provide a doorway into this world. In the mystery, we also get to see her life. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share that with people. Yes, it's a really good point to say that she's opening up a door, that we're all sort of in our own lanes and we probably know the story of our parents and our grandparents and people that looked like them and cousins that looked like them. But it's hard sometimes to see over the walls of that and realize that parallel on the tracks at the same time are all of these other stories. That's a really great way to explain it. It gives us a window or a door or a peek at something. Yes. Yes, I really enjoyed it. I think she's, I think there's also something very comforting about her. Like I knew this was a murder, but you write, you take very good care of your reader. There's nothing, there's no jump scares. It's exciting, but it's not. It's not graphic. Yes, yes, that's the right word. It's not graphic. It's a mystery, it's a search for truth. William Mosley, the popular mystery author, says that fiction it gives us an uncomfortable look at the world that we're struggling to in which we're struggling to live together and so the Annalise stories do that too but uh, at the end of the day um and because it's a mystery the mystery does get solved and because of that that resolution there's always um that a last moment of of hope that if she solved this mystery, she can go on to solve not only others, but also the mysteries in her own life. Yes. Yeah, there is an element of hope in a mystery. That's true. Because it because things are going to be okay. Right. You know, just a couple of other thoughts. I encountered a bit of snobbery around fiction when I started, you know, as I said, I've been in newspaper journalism and nonfiction in the nonfiction world for decades. And so people would say to me, you're writing a mystery novel? You know, I kind of hear that. And so I I love what these um, fiction gurus like uh, Robert McKee, for example, who's a screen uh, film doctor. And he says, we come to fiction not to escape life, but to find it. Mm. And so in stories are these these lessons, these takeaways that um, are life-changing. You know, there's no place like home. <laughs> you know? um, yes, right, right. And growing up in uh, in the church, I grew up early, early, in my earliest years as a kindergartner, you know, I grew up in the places where people were telling stories with on a felt board with characters and we could move the characters around and learn the stories. And so story matters to me. I, I recognize that we can find in stories those lessons that take us to uh, an understanding about ourselves and the world, you know, that make all the difference. So I I'm, I'm really feel privileged and honored to be working in fiction right now. Yes. The last question I almost always ask if I have, if you have time, the name of the podcast is Desideratum. It means literally an essential thing. And the idea for it came from a poem called Desiderata. 
Yes. On my wall when I was a college student, my college roommate and I bought a poster of Desert Island tacked it on our wall. Oh, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I, I always like to ask storytellers. So for you, when you explain to people, what is essential? And we've talked a lot about essential things throughout this hour. But but for you, when someone says, what's essential to you? How do you respond? What do you say? Oh, what is essential to me is transparency. Uh, that's what people say they like about my writing, my nonfiction writing. I have done a lot of memoirs, style, writing. I have a, a racial forgiveness memoir, my very first book. Uh, I also wrote a prayer memoir about my struggle to learn how to pray, even though I grew up in the church. And so I learned from reading memoir that the only way to write it was to be transparent. Uh, that if I went there, then the writing felt like good writing. If I wasn't trying to hide anything. And so uh, my daughters used to say to me, why, how can you share all this personal stuff in the, in the story? And so I, I said to them, because at the end of the day, it's actually not about me. When people read my nonfiction work, I write at the intersection of faith and race. That's where I write. But they'll say, uh, Dear Patricia, I read certain book I love this book second sentence it reminds me of me and then there's three or four more pages about themselves and so if I can give back what's really not mine and that is my story if I can give that back then that gives people permission to with the same courage to explore their own story and give it back yes yes transparency is really the ultimate form of honesty right yes and living your own truth right like this is also transparency is is about living your own truth and being honest about it to others and when you take your masks off and are open and transparent ultimately that helps other people see themselves how else can we be human together if we can't see each other really right yeah i love that i love that thank you so so much thank you so much i've enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed getting to know patricia raybon as much as i did i want to thank the colorado sun for shining their light on patricia's work i listen to the sun's podcast called the daily sunup and every sunday i check out their sunlit feature for author spotlights Sunlit editor Kevin Simpson often talks to authors on the Daily Sunup's Friday podcast. Look for it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Patricia is also part of a panel discussion at the Colorado Sun's SunFest Ideas Conference this week. Get more info at coloradosun.com. One more big thank you to her publisher, Tyndale House, the audio publisher, One Audiobooks, for the excerpts from Double the Lies. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>